That was a dark period of American history. We shouldn't repeat it, but here we are. We are repeating it. And the powers that be, the ruling elites in America, are dragging people by their nose and getting people either through deception or self-deception to, in essence, give up rights, give up the right to free speech, the right to free press, demonize those who come on to alternative media. You bomb us, then ban us. And while you may not have troops on the ground, your weapons still make the loudest sound sold to regional powers that compete in building towers in an auction of the highest price. While on our lives, they roll the dice. For the planes, guns, and war machines are louder than all our screams. What do we want? Justice! What do we want? Justice! What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! When do we want it? Now! When do we want it? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and on today's show, activist and radio show host Brian Becker on why the anti-war movement is split on opposing U.S. attacks on Syria. And it's the fourth Friday of the month, time for our in-depth focus on culture and media. And Brian will stay with us as we look at the news and information landscape in this new Cold War in the United States. And we have voices outside the Supreme Court continuing to oppose Trump's Muslim ban. So as always, the show is jam-packed, starting with our headlines. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt was called before Congress on Thursday, April 26th to answer charges that he is illegally wasting taxpayer money, that he's guilty of a number of other ethical and legal violations, and that his policies are protecting polluters and not the public before the hearing dozens gathered for a Boot Pruitt rally at the Northwest D.C. Office of the Environmental Protection Agency. Dominique Browning, co-founder of the organization Moms Clean Air Force, offered a verbal and written report card to Pruitt. We are big believers in report cards. They give us a sense of how things are going. And when it comes to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, things are not going very well at all. Here is how bad his performance is. Public health. He fails to understand the subject and we give him an F. He's unwilling to respect the work of leading doctors and scientists on the effect of air pollution on human health. Our hearts, our lungs, our brains, that is what is at stake here. The Reverend Lennox Yearwood reminded those gathered at the rally that this week also marked four years since the water crisis began in Flint, Michigan, where thousands are still seeking justice after being poisoned by lead-contaminated water. More news centered on the Trump cabinet on Thursday. Dr. Ronnie Jackson withdrew his name from consideration as Trump's nominee to head the Department of Veteran Affairs. Johnson faced mounting questions about his lack of qualifications to run the government's second largest agency, as well as explosive allegations regarding his conduct as White House physician, including alleged drunkenness on the job 
and improperly dispensing pills to staff. And despite protests by environmentalists and a variety of opposition, former CIA Director Mike Pompeo was confirmed by the Senate on Thursday with six Democrats voting for him, completing what some analysts describe as a war cabinet in the Trump administration. Now, for more international news, I'm joined by on-the-grounds geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, this week started with the U.S.-backed Saudi bombing of a wedding party in Yemen, killing more than 130 people, including the bride, and injuring scores more. And it's ending with a confirmation of known war hawk Mike Pompeo, and analysts say that Trump will attempt to back out of the nuclear deal with Iran. And though these headlines are of utmost importance, they just aren't getting the same amount of attention on cable news as Stormy Daniels. <laughs> well, with regard to the former question, despite the U.S. intervention in the Saudi assault on Yemen, that conflict is not going very well from the point of view of Washington or Riyadh. Just the other day in the Wall Street Journal, it was mentioned that those who are being attacked in Yemen in return are attacking Saudi Arabia, including Saudi oil fields. In fact, if they are going to be even more successful than they have been in the recent past, you can expect not only that the price of a barrel of oil may jump, which will hit U.S. consumers right in the pocketbook, but it could also lead to increased insecurity. So that is not a conflict that is going very well. And with regard to Iran, which Riyadh and Washington are pointed to as the villain in Yemen and in Syria, it's striking to note that Mr. Trump has all but indicated that he will be pulling the United States or seeking to pull the United States out of the Iranian nuclear accord. President Macron of France objected to that, including in his speech before Congress just the other day. But I dare say that if Mr. Trump makes that very bold move, that too will not go down very well. It will split the Europeans, as indicated by Mr. Macron's speech in Washington, but it will also alienate further Germany, uh, which is in favor of the Iranian nuclear accord. And in fact, the European Union foreign policy coordinator has, all, has already made clear that they are going to stick with this accord. So if anything, it could lead to further complicating of relations between the United States and its closest allies. Well, as we do every week now, we're keeping an eye on Gaza because of the continued killing with impunity by the Israeli Defense Forces of, of unarmed Palestinians during these weekly marches, the Great March of Return, which will culminate in a couple of weeks now in the 70th anniversary to mark the Nakba, or Great Catastrophe, when up to a million Palestinians were displaced and thousands were killed uh, to found the State of Israel. And we know now that at least two journalists have been killed uh, during these protests, uh, people mark, you know, wearing the clearly marked uh, press vests. We're we're just keeping an eye on that because we know every week when we when we when we're on the air, these things are happening almost simultaneously as we're broadcasting. Well, first of all, with regard to your former point, 
there was also a very controversial slaying in Malaysia of a Palestinian scientist that has been laid at the doorstep of Israeli agents. And if so, that would not be the first time that Israel has engaged in an assassination on foreign soil. Israel's international position is not ideal right now, not only because of its inability to topple the Bashar al-Assad regime in Damascus, but also because of that inability, it now has on one border a Bashar al-Assad regime that is backed by Iran on another border, a Hezbollah force that has fought Israel to a standstill in Lebanon in the past decade. Okay, well, that's another place that we definitely keep our eye on. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. In Culture and Media, the documentary RBG about the octogenarian Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg hits theaters May 4th. The Broccoli City Festival is happening at RFK Stadium and other locations. And social justice organizations around the country and world are preparing to celebrate May Day or International Workers' Day on May 1st. D.C.'s May Day Festival will be held May 1st at 5 p.m. at Malcolm X Park also known as Meridian Hill Park in Northwest D.C. More information is at dcmayday.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, voices outside the Supreme Court as the court heard arguments on Trump's Muslim ban. Stay with us. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Breaking rocks and serving my time Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Cause the gun convicted me a crime I hold it steady right there while I hear it Well I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working But I still got so terribly far to go I committed crime, Lord, I need Crime of being hungry and poor I left the grocery store and breathing When they caught me robbing a store Hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working But I still got so terribly far to go you bomb us, then ban us. Air strikes on landed people whose blood drips as long as the oil price dips or keeps dipping because oil shocks keep the war machines running. You bomb us, then ban us because after cities demolished, homes disappeared, and people displaced, we are the ones in which your fear you placed. You bomb us, then ban us. And while you may not have troops on the ground, your weapons still make the loudest sound sold to regional powers that compete in building towers in an auction of the highest price. While on our lives, they roll the dice. For the planes, guns, and war machines are louder than all our screams. You bomb us, then ban us. Dictatorships, civil wars, and coalition fights leave us stranded with no hope but flight. Because our land is no longer ours. And we count our lives in hours. It's a realpolitik game for those regional and international powers. And while instinct is left with flight, 
Because in us, we have no more energy to fight. We can't catch flights. We get turned away on borders, land, and sea. And the world chooses to keep ignoring our plea. And all we're reduced to is being called refugee or deportee. Because we didn't really get the full rights of refugee. Please don't bomb us if you plan on banning us. Please, let's not forget the imperial war machine that is also operating in the places that we're we're banning these Muslims from coming from. That's something that is often neglected when we're talking about the Muslim ban, that a lot of these people go through civil wars, they go through dictatorships, and this country is the only hope they have. I know it was the only hope my family had, and that's the reason I'm standing here. I am Libyan fully, but I am also a product of this country. I am a product of public schools in New York and California, and that is what allowed me to have the privilege to stand here and speak not only for myself, but for my community, and also for the United States. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fena. Today I'm honored to pre present our next speaker, David Inun, who is the Executive Director for the Japanese American Citizen League. Thank you. That's a good question. Why is the Japanese American Citizens League here today? Did we learn nothing from our history? 76 years ago, the president issued an executive order that led to the imprisonment of nearly 120,000 people of Japanese descent. They had done nothing wrong. They were not even suspected of doing anything wrong. They were guilty only of having Japanese ancestry. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? It's time to stop repeating history. 70 years ago, JCL submitted an amicus brief in the cases challenging the mass incarceration. And today, we have once again submitted a brief in this case. The frightening thing is that a lot of the same arguments we made 70 years ago are the same arguments we are making today. Then as now, the government is making the argument that this is necessary for the security of our nation. Trust us, we are doing this to keep you safe from terrorism. Fear is a powerful motivator that has been employed throughout our nation's history, particularly in our immigration policies. My, my Chinese grandfather immigrated to this country as a paper son. Look it up if you don't know what that paper son is. You need to know. Japanese immigrants in the first half of the 20th century were not allowed to become citizens. Later, during the war, that fact that they were still Japanese citizens was used as evidence of their disloyalty to the United States. Didn't know you were gonna get a history lesson today, did you? But history is important because we need to stop repeating history. The Muslim travel ban is just one more example of how we as a country continue to discriminate against immigrants who don't fit the image of America that some people want to maintain. Today, I look out at who's here, and I'm encouraged by the diversity that we have. And today, that our, our bound together is a strength that we what overcomes the bigotry and racism that is driving this Muslim ban. I'm not a lawyer, but when I hear from those who have gone through law school universally, the wartime imprisonment of Japanese Americans, and the cases with the names of Hirabayashi, Korematsu, and Yasui are invoked as the greatest miscarriages of justice by this Supreme Court. The late Justice Scalia, yes, Justice Scalia, ranked Korematsu as one of the worst court decisions ever, along with Dred Scott. But he also left open the possibility that this could happen again. He noted that in times of war, the laws fall silent. Because of what happened to Japanese Americans during the war, 
JCL stands here today because we made a promise then that we would not allow the unbridled racism bigotry that happened to us happen to anyone else. What happened to Japanese Americans 75 years ago was possible because almost no one stood with us or for us. That is not the case today. We are all here today together to say that this is wrong. This is not what we are as a country. I want to send a message to our justices today that this is your opportunity to correct the court's past mistake. It is the duty of the court to make sure that the law does not fall silent. 30 years ago, Congress passed and the President signed into law the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which apologized and provided compensation to Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated during the war. The Supreme Court remains the only branch of our government that has not repudiated its past mistake. It is now time for the court to right that wrong and strike down the Muslim ban. Stop repeating history. No Muslim ban ever. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. When do we want it? Now. When do we want it? I just want to say to all of you, first of all, thank you for all coming out today. I'm from Somalia. My family came here in 1993. And this ban has affected Somali Americans like other Muslims. And in fact, on March 27, the former president of Somalia, who was here in this country not long ago, was denied coming to the United States. The former president of Somalia. We have family members who have not been able to connect, including my family. And the fear that has led to so many to cross to the Canadian border in the middle of the winter, to so many families who have been distraught, not knowing. I remember traveling across Minnesota and talking to people. And the one th question I kept getting from, from Somalis particular was, do I have to carry around my passport? This is the type of fear. This is the type of destruction and terror that this ban has affected many community members across. And in fact, the question that many of us have been asking is, is this really America? Have we come to the point where we are asking about the question of a religion in this country, a country that has been home to people who have been fleeing religious persecution? And we're gonna win. Are we gonna win? Yeah. 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 All right. Round of applause, everybody. I'm excited. You have been listening to Fana Hassan, David Inoue, and Jelani Hussein speaking at a rally outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday, April 25th, 2018, as arguments were heard on Trump's Muslim ban. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Say 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And unlike during the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, when millions of people around the world filled the streets in opposition, in 2018, the left appears more divided or muted in its stance on Syria and even on the carnage in Yemen. Joining me to discuss this apparent change in the anti-war movement and the new Cold War media landscape is Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the ANSWER Coalition, which has played a pivotal role in peace mobilizations. ANSWER stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Brian is also the host of the show and podcast, Loud and Clear, on Sputnik Radio. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks. It's great, a great pleasure to be with you. Well, let's just start with my initial idea. So when it comes to Syria, do you see the left split in terms of of mobilization, media, and social media? Yes, it's undeniable that within the left, within not just the liberal versus socialist left, but even within the socialist-led left, there are profound differences over the American war drive in Syria. One, everyone has to recognize that what the U.S. did to Syria and is doing to Syria is illegal. The U.S. is occupying Syria. It's taken over 30% of its land. All that part of the Syria north, uh, the northern part of the country east of the Euphrates is now under American control. The U.S. and France and Britain just hit the country with 100 cruise missiles without U.N. Security Council authorization or congressional authorization. This is clearly illegal and thus a war of aggression. But in spite of that, a big parts of the left are either not mobilizing because they have the position that Assad is evil They've bought into the demonization of the government uh, in the mass media in the U.S. to such an extent that they actually think it's good that the U.S. is striking Assad. Or they have another position, which is more or less a plague on both your houses, where they stand on the sidelines, fold their arms, and say, uh, the U.S. shouldn't be doing this, but Assad is such a butcher, so awful. Uh, we're not going to actually devote any amount of time to fighting against another imperial war from our own government. And then there's organizations like the Answer Coalition and uh, others who have been in the streets and have been in the streets from day one saying, like Iraq, like Libya, like Vietnam, like Korea, like Grenada, like the invasion of Panama, that this is an imperial war. And imperialist wars in the 20th and 21st century are always justified with a noble cause it's not like the 19th century where the colonizing powers could just say, hey, we want Africa, we want Latin America, we want Asia, and we're going to take it. They now have to justify uh, the military intervention with a noble cause like protecting civilians or stopping weapons of mass destruction or you know, things like promoting democracy. 
but from our point of view, it's the same imperial uh, forces that are going to war against targeted countries, and they have their own imperial agenda. And we, the people of the United States, have to stand up and say to the U.S. government and to our, all the other people in America, in the United States of America, this government speaks in our name, but it's pursuing an imperialist agenda, and we have to oppose it. When it comes to the actual socialist left being split, it's puzzling to me because you would think that there would be some kind of unified idea about imperialism and its history and its impact right now. On its face, I would say yes, you know, in a formalistic way. But it's not about whether we all read the same books at our Marxism classes or speak in the same sort of anti-imperialist way at branch meetings or chapter meetings. It's what you actually do in society, what you do to challenge the narrative of the ruling class and challenge the public consciousness that's been influenced by the ruling class narrative. And I think that a certain part of the so-called socialist left is perfectly happy to more or less have the same position as the U.S. government with some nuanced differences and with some leftist rationales. But Esther, if you think about it, the same thing happened at the beginning of World War One. All the socialists said at the beginning of World War One, if a, a war between the different capitalist countries comes to be, which they were predicting in 1912, uh, we'll take advantage of the war to promote revolution in our country, but we won't kill our sister and brother workers from other nations. And yet when the war came, with the exception of the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Serbian Socialist Party or Eugene Debs and a few others, almost all of the socialists capitulated to the war hysteria of their own ruling class and, and bought into the demonization of the enemy because, frankly, it was just easier. It was easier than challenging uh, the dominant social consciousness that had been shaped by the war makers. And so there's a history of capitulation. Now, another narrative that I've seen lately is that the left wants to believe white men from the West rather than Syrians themselves in terms of how we view the war there. But it occurs to me that the Western media never gives voice to Syrians or people from the Arab world who actually do support having the current government rather than military regime change. So it's kind of a, a catch-22. I've even heard people malign Robert Fisk, the veteran journalist who went in recently and came out and said that it's a question about whether there was any kind of chemical attack that was alleged. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, the, the U.S.-British French cruise missile attack on Syria came on the night before the weapons inspectors from the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons were due to arrive. Why rush? Why rush to judgment? Why bomb before the investigators got there? I think it's because it's, it's a dubious claim. We don't know. None of us really know. We're not there. We're not in Duma, where the chemical weapon supposedly happened. But, you know, the Syrian government was the entity within the Syrian war that would get the least benefit from using chemical weapons. They had already defeated these armed Salafist guerrillas, uh, rebel armed factions. They were evacuating Duma. They were taking them by buses and their families to Idlib in the northern part of the country. Why, under those circumstances, would they use the one weapon that would be used by Western powers, major military powers, to trigger an intervention against Syria that would deprive Syria potentially of the military victory that was at hand. It just doesn't make any military sense. 
Um, but it does make sense from the point of view of the Salafist armed factions, Al-Qaeda affiliated. It does make sense from the point of view of Saudi Arabia. It does make sense from the point of view of Tel Aviv or Western powers like the U.S., Britain, and France that were looking for a reason uh, to begin new military strikes. So I think it's very, very questionable about whether the attack happened or if it happened, whether it was actually the Syrian government. But again, uh, this was a rush to judgment. So a, a lot of this narrative or competing narratives is obviously related to the media and very much connected to who gets a voice, who gets a voice to say about what is really happening in Syria. And working uh, on your show, I think that, you know, you're conscious of the fact that who gets to speak really matters. Now, a lot of the information that gets broadcast all over Western media, including these recent videos of the alleged aftermath of this attack, have come from the White Helmets. And this is group is very controversial, and it's been revealed by some to just basically be a propaganda outfit that produces these videos. Some journalists have found children in the videos who describe not a chemical attack, but being kind of pulled into the hospital where they were just uh, poured, poured with water and uh, made to kind of be an actor in this video after this alleged attack. So my, I guess my point is uh, to really kind of talk about the White Helmets and the role of the so-called Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is not even in Syria, somewhere in Europe, and their role in the narrative about Syria. Well, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is one person in the UK. The White Helmets are an entity that has uh, disguised themselves as a humanitarian group. It's only given freedom to travel, though, uh, in the areas under the control of al-Qaeda. In other words, it, one would think then they are either the friends of al-Qaeda or the al-Qaeda affiliate, Syria, or they are al-Qaeda. And they're very useful because they can pretend to be an independent humanitarian agency, but they only show and have only shown videos or described stories about horrors of purportedly imposed on people by the Syrian government, never by rebel armed factions. And I think they are completely supported by the U.S. government, the U.S. government and the British government, the French government. They all think the White Helmets are doing a good job. Can you think, can we think of one time in which U.S. imperialism or British or French imperialism actually supported a human rights group that was challenging imperialism in any of the areas that they dominated, whether in the case of France, it was uh, the Francophone part of Africa or the British-controlled parts of Africa or the French-controlled parts of the Middle East or the British-controlled parts of the Middle East. Did the U.S. ever cite humanitarian groups that were indicting U.S. imperialism for its war in Vietnam or Korea or any of the other countries? Of course not. The fact that these governments are so embracing of the White Helmets says everything one needs to actually know about the White Helmets, that they are an extension of Western political power and aligned with the Al-Qaeda armed factions that the U.S. has been supporting for the past six years. Uh, and again, I think it's so important as to what you said. Do the American people get a chance to hear the Syrian side? I mean, Bashar al-Assad, you can have lots of criticisms of the Syrian government. It also has a very big popular base, and there's a reason for it. The Syrian government has tolerated and supported and protected religious minorities, including Christians. 
the Syrian government has promoted in the face of very right-wing Islamicist forces the rights of women to go to school, to become professionals, to dress as they want to dress. Uh, right. In other words, the Syrian government has promoted a secular position against those who want to take Syria back to the 7th century. And it's ironic that the Western countries that believe in the Renaissance and the rights of man and all of the things that are supposedly wonderful, including the separation of church and state in Western countries, here you have a government in Syria. Again, even if you have political criticisms of it, that's the steadfast foundational program of the Syrian government. So obviously the Syrian people who grew up in a secular society with these rights don't want to be living under ISIS, don't want to be living under al-Qaeda. And as a consequence, Assad's government, even if people disagree with it on many things, which I'm sure they do, they defend the right of that government to exist because the alternative will be far worse. I actually had an interview with an author. He wrote a two-volume book, um, Genocide in Iraq. Well, one of the titles dealt with genocide in Iraq. And it was his thesis that just like in Iraq, Syria was being opposed because precisely because it was a secular government uh, that the Ba'athist party was a party that was made up of people trying to resist the kind of religious fanaticism or kind of just a religious turn in the Arab world that they wanted to maintain a secular society and that he thought it was very key that it was Iraq and that it w- not that there weren't problems there, definitely under Saddam Hussein, and that now Syria, another secular society that's being attacked by the U.S. with the help of these monarchies like Saudi Arabia and who, who want to see an end to these uh, governments. Indeed. And, and just think about it. The U.S. is supporting Saudi Arabia's war in Syria and Saudi Arabia's war against the people of Yemen. In Saudi Arabia... Uh, women are slaves, literally slaves. Women are the property of men. Even if uh, there's a grown woman and, and the males of her generation from her family are, let's say, passed away, she will belong to the next male in the lineage, even if that male is a child. She can't right. go anywhere without male accompaniment. And then you have the Saudi government, which sits on the UN Human Rights Commission, lecturing Syria and supporting armed Islamist right-wing groupings to overturn a secular government, all in the name of human rights. And you have the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, all thinking this is pretty much okay. Because then, again, they function as an echo chamber for U.S. foreign policy. And U.S. foreign policy is to carry out regime change in Syria, in Libya, as it already did. And they executed the head of state, lynched Gaddafi in the streets, a 70-year-old head of state. Uh, They did the same thing to Saddam. They executed Saddam. Why are they targeting these governments? Are these governments worse in terms of democratic human rights policies? No. The reason they're targeting them is that these are the governments in this oil-rich, geostrategically important part of the world that owe their existence to the anti-colonial revolutions that took place in those countries. And so from the day those revolutions succeeded, the U.S., Britain, France, Italy, In the case of Libya, all of them wanted to take the countries back to the good old days when foreign powers were the real colonial arbiters and determiners of the of the destinies of those countries. It occurred to me that unlike in the run up to Iraq, there seem to be more Syrian Americans here who have the ear of the media and who certainly have a presence in the media 
in terms of being that mouthpiece to basically egg on the U.S. to war and to bolster the claim for war, who have the ear and, and who get the microphone in U.S. media to basically say that, you know, Assad's a monster. And so therefore we have a right to go bomb another country. Yeah, and I think it's more that they have the microphone, actually, because uh, there's a lot of Syrians in the United States who are, again, even if they have criticisms of the Assad government, support the Assad government against the alternative, which is they have a right-wing Islamist Saudi-backed uh, group being takeover. Uh, I was at a demonstration in Washington uh, in 2013 uh, at the time, the Obama administration was being pushed to take, a, you know, a major bombing effort in August, September 2013, again, using the weapons of, uh, the chemical weapons as a pretext. And there were about, I'd say, 1,000 to 2,000 Syrians who had driven from all over the country to stand up and support the Syrian government. And um, that's a big effort, and this was on a weekday. And, um, and they were from all over the country. And they got almost no press coverage. And even though there's a lot of Syrians who have this view in the United States, I think that the media and the producers in TV shows, they know if you're going to get a voice on Syria and it's a Syrian voice, make sure you call these people in your Rolodex because they're the ones who are going to say exactly what the network wants you to say, meaning uh, uh, supporting the demonization of Assad and the, uh, supporting de facto, ipso facto, the, the war effort against Syria. So I think it's really the issue of the microphone more than the fact that the, the Syrian community is divided, but there's a lot of Syrians here and all over the world who, who actually have a different position than what the U.S. is telling them. Right. I'm going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the Answer Coalition, and also host of the show and podcast Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio. And Brian, before the break, we were talking about the splits in the left and the progressive left when it comes to the war in Syria. And now I want to switch and talk about the new Cold War media landscape. I'm kind of a news junkie. I love to watch news, even though I, I just can't really can't stand to watch corporate cable news anymore. But I had turned to start to watch a lot of international channels. So RT was part of that, the Russia channel, but also a channel from China, 
Turkey, France, even a channel that deals mainly with Africa. And on April 1st, the local channels that carried all these different shows went through some type of auction process. And so therefore, the channel was not able to be picked up by cable anymore. So not only could the people who just get broadcast television, not only could they not get these channels, but uh, anyone who gets cable locally could not get these channels anymore either. So that cut out for me as a person who was really enjoying getting a different viewpoint of the world, just cut me off. right? <laughs> and, and then you could perhaps get RT on Pluto TV. And now I can't even get that. You know, it's just of all the channels on Pluto, RT just doesn't come up. <laughs> so I wanted to get your perspective as someone working for Sputnik, which is also Russian media, about this new Cold War landscape. I know that at some point, RT and Sputnik were required to register as foreign agents. And that was the first salvo in a way. So as an American, you know, who talking about things affecting Americans, did you have to register as a foreign agent to continue working there? Uh, the way it worked with Sputnik and with RT is the station had to register as a foreign agent. Those of us who are working here were not required to register on an individual level as foreign agents, but we now work for a company that is registered as a foreign agent, which, you know, the FARA Act, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, was uh, designed to, in, in 1938, to stop Nazi propaganda in the United States. Historically, FARA, that category, has been used for lobbyists and people who are, you know, doing actual work to try to influence elected officials or the media in Washington or elsewhere in the United States. It's, the media has been exempted from that because it's the basic issue of do people have the right of a free press, meaning the right to access media. But that's all changed now. So we have the stations, RT and Sputnik, have been forced to register. As you said, starting on April 1st, all of these international channels, CGTN, the People's Republic of China channel, which is a, you know, also very, very interesting they disappeared from the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia metro area. It's pretty severe, and I wish progressive or liberal-type people who are just buying into the anti-Russia narrative whole hog and taking it almost as an article of faith would realize that what's happening actually is that there is, as happened in the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, a, a real chilling impact on people's rights to access information or to associate. Uh, we have people in Georgia, black activists who are, and black uh, political organizers who are being smeared or in one case fired because they were on our radio shows at Radio Sputnik. The station in Austin, Texas that carried my show, Loud and Clear is a daily two-hour-a-day news and analysis show. You know, we've had, we have nine interviews a day with maybe 12 to 15 guests. Very interesting, very diverse I think if it was on, quote, mainstream media, a lot of people would really, really like it. But, you know, we're producing all of this content. We have some stations around the country in addition to a couple of D.C. stations. But now the Austin station just announced that they're dropping us from their programming because of fear of being associated with, quote, Russia and what it might do to their funding sources. In the case of the Austin station, I think it was just one person complained, and that led the whole board of directors to shut down the show. It has a big impact. 
And people in the, in the United States who say we cherish free speech rights, they should be aware that when the government or a government-inspired campaign using law enforcement and law enforcement methods shuts down alternative media sites, where does it stop? I mean, we've gone through this. You know, when I was, you know, and I'm sure this is true for you, Esther, when for those of us who were like politically active in the last couple of decades, we learned that the witch hunt in the Cold War of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s was a bad thing. You know, movies like The Front and, and all of the other exposés where Hollywood actors and cultural figures or civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and so many others were being pushed back or repressed uh, on the basis of anti-communism. People were afraid to sign a petition against nuclear weapons because maybe one of the other signers was the World Peace Council, which was affiliated with the Communist Party. This kind of chilling impact, we all learned that this is a bad thing. We said that was a dark period of American history. We shouldn't repeat it, but here we are. We are repeating it. And the powers that be, the ruling elites in America, are dragging people by their nose and getting people either through deception or self-deception to, in essence, give up rights, give up the right to free speech, the right to free press, demonize those who come onto alternative media, in the case of RT, in the case of Sputnik, nobody's ever told me a darn thing about what to say. I've had like 1,500 guests over the last two years. You know, they said, well, Russia was colluding with Trump. If you listen to my show or you listen to Eugene Prier, Sean Blackman's show, By Any Means Necessary, these were the two shows that were operational during the election campaign, along with another one from the District Sentinel. We were all virulently anti-Donald Trump. There was no promotion of Donald Trump. But if I tell people who don't know what, you know, I'm meeting them for the first time, I say, I work for Radio Sputnik, they say, oh, but you're progressive. Why are you helping Donald Trump? I mean, it's just an article of faith. You know, it's equal to a religious article of faith where you either put your hand up and say, I believe. And if you don't believe, then maybe either you're a witch yourself or you're an apostate. But, you know, that's a lot of pressure on people. And that's what's going on. People are losing their right to hear alternative media voices. Guess what? If CNN said or CBS said they also want to broadcast loud and clear, I would be glad to do it because it would reach millions of people. That doesn't mean I endorse CBS's policies, which are very odious, but do leftists and progressives have the right to have media platforms, or should we just be shut out entirely so that the corporate-owned media dominates everything? That's really the question. It's to the point where the whole premise that if something is state-owned media is bad, that whole premise is lost on me. The question to ask is, is that any worse than corporate-owned media? When you look at what corporate-owned media produces, all the information I was getting that I was really enjoying and, you know, just seeing different parts of the world and seeing people in different settings and hearing different perspectives, all of it is probably either state owned or state sponsored or, you know, state affiliated or something, because information doesn't have to be produced by a corporation to be information. That's an excellent point, because it it could be state owned or it could be corporate owned. Uh, The best thing would be for it to be publicly owned, like Pacifica. But it would be really instructional, I think, if you compared, let's say, the show hosts from CBS radio, when they sit down and plan out their schedules for the day and what they're going to do and what content they're going to have, versus when, if you sat down with Loud and Clear, my show, I co-host with John Kiriakou or Eugene Prier's show, 
we sit in the morning, we go over the stories of the day, we think about what might be coming up the next day, we have a give and take. There's an editor there from Sputnik, he throws in his two cents. I'm quite sure that we have far more leeway than what exists either in CBS or MSNBC or the other corporate-owned media to provide original content that's very diverse. I just think that the the corporate-owned media, you know, a corporation is like a dictatorship within, right, because the board of directors and the bosses there, they have absolute authority. The reporters and journalists know that if they don't follow the rules, the script, the narrative, they won't be reporters very long. So that's how it works. Well, you mentioned Pacifica, and of course, you know, public media, uh, what people think of as public media, they think of NPR, they think of, of National Public Radio, but these entities are also funded by corporations. I mean, Pacifica may be the only true public media in the sense that we don't get support from like Lockheed Martin and many of these other military contractors that also place ads on corporate media. So in an, in a situation like this, you see Pacifica really struggling to survive. And basically, since I've been affiliated with it as a, as a volunteer programmer or journalist, it's been struggling and really under attack. And you never know where the attack is coming from, but it's always under attack. So it's, it's very difficult to maintain. And it's a real struggle to actually keep progressive news on what was founded to be a progressive network. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I also want to pick up on one other theme, which is that when we consider that organizations have been targeted, like some of the independent political candidates are being targeted by this whole Russiagate thing too, part of what's going on is that the dominant political parties that are controlling the Russiagate investigation, like the Democrats and Republicans who control all the congressional committees, or the intelligence agencies, they're targeting independent political parties and political candidates if they dare appear on media platforms like RT or Sputnik or other international channels. And at the same time, the corporate-owned media won't give these candidates the time of day. They're not allowed to be there. There's no third-party candidate debates. The candidates are kept out of the debates. So then if the candidates seek to, say, go on... CGTN or RT or Sputnik or international media, then they're targeted for going on state-owned media. So in essence, what the government and what the political parties, the political elites are saying is, you really can't exist and compete as an independent third party or independent political movement because we won't give you coverage. We won't give you a platform and you dare not try to get coverage from any other platform if it's from the international media. So basically, your only way to escape this attack is to remain completely silent. I mean, that's a very chilling message. You're right. And I really do need to get Jill Stein back on the show. It's really an I won't say underreported or unreported story that she is still under some type of official investigation because it's really sparked by the fact that so many people voted for her. And it's almost saying that because so many people voted for her, she must have been a part of some Russia plot to destroy the election and keep Hillary Clinton from winning, as opposed to the, the voting public 
making up their own adult minds to say, I don't want either one of these other candidates. I'm going to vote for Joe Stein. I'm, I'm tired of this voting for the lesser of the two evil or, the, or supposedly lesser of the two evil. I'm going to vote for Joe Stein. And she is still under investigation. The campaign, the Green Party is still required to turn over documents from the campaign to these congressional investigators. I just spoke to not that long ago to uh, Ajamu Baraka, who told me this. And it's it's a very serious situation where it's just like you said, not only a shutting down of information and the viewpoints that people are able to to hear, but also a shutting down of these alternative candidates who presented some type of alternative to the two parties. Indeed. And I noticed that David Axelrod, who's a top commentator on one of the net cable networks, maybe CNN, and was Obama's campaign manager and then an official with the Obama uh, administration. He tweeted out at one time, he said, oh, Jill Stein got 50,000 votes in Wisconsin. Trump beat Clinton by 12,000 votes in Wisconsin. Very smart move on the Russians part or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but it was like that. Like, in other words, smart tactic. As if Hillary Clinton should have been coronated, there shouldn't have been a third party. Uh, Having a third party, if, if somebody voted for the Green Party, that meant that it was almost like a stolen vote from Hillary Clinton. Like it was her God-given right to have all of these votes, even though all the polling shows that a big part of, of Jill Stein or Green Party or other independent candidates, if they couldn't vote for their candidate, they would have just stayed home or they would have evenly split between Clinton and Trump. Even though there's no evidence, it's part of the blame game. And it's also a way of demonizing third-party candidates for just existing and you know what? Maybe Hillary Clinton should have visited Wisconsin. Maybe exactly. she should have actually campaigned there. Maybe that could help us understand why a state that Obama carried two times in a row uh, narrowly went for Donald Trump this time. You can tell by this recent lawsuit brought by the DNC against Russia, WikiLeaks, uh, the Trump campaign, it means that they're really doubling down on this narrative so that All these things that we're talking about, the limiting of information, the limiting of third party candidates just feeds into this overall strategy of doubling down. They're not letting go of the Russiagate narrative, even though at this point nothing's been proven. So I think we're actually I I mean, this is my own personal opinion. I think we're past the point of no return on the Russiagate um, and anti-Russia hysteria. Uh, The lawsuit is a ridiculous lawsuit suing Trump, WikiLeaks, and Russia. Again, even while the Robert Mueller investigation hasn't fully finished. But, you know, when when you think about it, George W. Bush, when he came into office, he said, we want to make better relations with Russia. He even said he looked into the eyes of Vladimir Putin and could see his soul and he was a good man or some rubbish like that. And then when Obama got elected, Hillary Clinton met with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, her counterpart. She brought this great big red reset button. Do you remember that where they said, let's press the reset button, make Russian-American relations better. That was just, you know, nine years ago. Now you have a situation where we're in in the middle of a full-scale bipartisan hysteria. It's an article of faith. It has the sense of religious fervor. It's a witch hunt. And if anybody even says... Let's have better relations with Russia, as Bush did, or as Obama, Hillary Clinton did. Now that makes you kind of like almost perhaps a stooge for the Kremlin. So I think we're past the point of no return. We've entered a new stage of American politics 
And my message to progressives is if you think you can escape this awful, chilling, right-wing, witch-hunting wind by ducking or bending, you are sadly mistaken. The only way to resist a hysteria and a witch hunt is to stand against it. And so I think that it's time for people on the left to start thinking and to have a backbone and to be fearless and to stick to their principles and, and not be afraid. And that's the only thing we have that we can marshal at this point. Well, that's a good note to end our conversation. I've been speaking with Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the Answer Coalition. He's also the host of the show and podcast, Loud and Clear, on Sputnik Radio. Thank you for joining me today, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank again my guests, Gerald Horn and Brian Becker. The music we played this hour included the work song by Nina Simone, I Wish I Knew How It Feels to Be Free by Nina Simone and Free by Stevie Wonder. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. I'm Esther Averam. On Saturday, April 28th at 3 p.m., I'll be at Sankofa Video Books and Cafe on Georgia Avenue in Northwest D.C., with my project, Olokun of the Galaxy, which is about remembering the Ma'afa and honoring Earth's oceans and water. I'd love to see you there. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>